Oh, hi. Oh. <laughs> uh, I probably should let you turn around first. I haven't been up here yet today, so obviously none of you know who I am. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm BJ. I'm one of the staff pastors here. And um, fun fact about me, I'm the worst person on earth for a microphone to have to sit on. That's a fact. Okay, so here's the thing. Mike and Todd, they sit up here. They've got all this grip. They've got all this, this, this Velcro that the microphone can hang on to. Um, <laughs> it's, like, it's like a nest in there. They could build a home. You know, microphones have the ability to build a home. And then you get to my face, and it's, well, my face is like, if you took a brick wall, and then you glued a slip and slide to it, and then asked a rock climber to climb it, that's what this mic's doing. <laughs> And you'll see it, like, like it starts up here, and then it's like, oh, we can't do it! We can't do it! And I have to help it. Anyways, that's why I do this all the time. It's not a nervous tick, it's a, wow. You have a hard job, Mike. Not you, Mike. I mean, you do, but microphone. Ah. <sighs> I wrote none of that opener, so <laughs> we should get to what I actually wrote. Um... Anyway, it's my turn. If you do know me, if all of that's like old news, if you do know me, you know that my turn of rotation probably means one thing for certain. That we're talking about somebody getting healed today, probably of blindness, lameness, or... <laughs> uh, I, I actually went back and looked. Like, I think, I've had, I think I've had every single blind and deaf healing in the Gospel of Mark. And I only teach once a month. Uh, <laughs> it just happens to, to land that way, which is interesting. Um, but it's actually really neat this week. It's really neat that it um, landed that way because um, this week is the last one. This is the last blind person in the Gospel of Mark that we're going to get details about. And as I've been able to teach through each and every one of them, I've had all the details pretty much right clear in my mind all the way through. And so it's the last thing I remember studying. It's the last thing I remember teaching almost every time I get up here. And if I hadn't been that way, if I was teaching every single week, story by story, verse by verse, chapter through chapter, I don't know if I would have noticed some cool details this morning. I don't know if some of the cool details this morning would have jumped out to me as much about the significance of the very last blind person healed in the Gospel of Mark. See, there's something unique and different about um, healing from the other stories that I've taught on. And not to give too much away, but there's confidence in the man who Jesus heals this morning. A confidence that I didn't find in, in the vast majority of the others. And I think that there's a good reason for why. I think there's a good reason for that. Today, before we dive into our text, I want to remind us of what Jesus came to do. This is a little aside, and especially if you come in here today and you don't fully believe in Jesus, it's not really your thing. Uh, maybe you've had experience with the church, you've had experience with religious leaders throughout history. Maybe this just really isn't your thing. Um, I want to make something really clear about what Jesus came to do. This is for all of us. This is why Son of God became Son of Man. And I don't mean what actions he took, right? I think that's where our physical minds naturally tend to turn to, the actions of living, ministering, and being tortured, tortured, dying, raising, 
back to life, sending into heaven. Those are the actions, but what were the actions for? What was the purpose? Why do all that? To save anyone who would follow him, right? True, but save us from what? Save humanity from what? Death. Save humanity from death. That's what he defeated in the grave, but what is death? What is death? What is it really? What really is this experience that God had to send his own son to save us from? What is so terrible that could cause a perfect God to willingly sacrifice his own flesh and blood to save his creation from? What is that? Well, we should know. We should know. Because we've been there. We've been there. Or someone here today, as I previously mentioned, might be there right now. Death. Be somebody here right now. That's your experience. A living death. Not a physical death. Something much, much worse. A living death. Jesus came to save us from spiritual death, not a physical death. And that's far far worse. That's a far worse death. And if you don't believe me, perhaps you've never been so dead inside that a physical death actually kind of sounded good. Maybe you've never been there. But I bet somebody in here has. Perhaps you've never taken a real look at the empty darkness inside, the pointlessness of life, the dark and lonely truth that you're not actually good and that no one around you is actually good. Not Christians, not non-Christians. An overwhelming cloud of darkness blankets all humanity and it's visible to everyone. In a never-ending cycle of death, abuse, and internal loneliness. I wrote all of that before Israel went to war and they started blasting each other in the streets. All the external personas of strength and confidence aren't enough to convince our inner person that longs for health. We have a desire for that. We long for health, unity, and unconditional love. The part of us that wants to see light dawn on us all. We desire that. We can't produce it, but we desire it. The part of us that knows light seems to be a real thing, it exists somewhere. There is such a thing as goodness, yet none of us seem to be the source of such light. Everyone around us only seems capable of reflecting some occasional tainted light. That only further proves the reality of our inner lonely darkness. Be in a crowd of people and be very lonely. That's what spiritual death is. The truth that our inner person is damaged goods and there's no hero on earth, no great speaker, no great leader, no great friend that can fully restore our inner damaged person. No way for any to fully see our inner person, that inner person remains right where we want it, hidden in darkness. 
I would suggest that most who know there's a darkness inside are hoping, hoping, this isn't for the believer, this is for the world, hoping somewhere between the borders of light and darkness, there might be a gray line, some sort of border, a little gray line, that perhaps it's possible to be light enough, just light enough, a shade of gray to be okay. Maybe on that bell curve of actions, never mind what's going inside, I know I'm messed up inside, but my actions, maybe somewhere I'm on the top of this bell curve where I'm, I'm okay because I'm nicer than other people I've seen. If that's you today, then let me challenge you with this. Is an evil person, someone who does evil things all the time, who lives their lives as an evil person, or is an evil person someone who did at least one eat or this? Before you answer in your heart, consider more question. Is a murderer someone who murders all the time, or someone who just murdered once? Why are they different? in our minds, our estimation. They aren't. They're not different. A person who did an evil thing even once is an evil person. The inner darkness exists. That brokenness is real. You're not crazy. You are damaged goods. Woo! <laughs> My youth group's laughing because we've got some jokes around that. Just like physical death, spiritual death is not on a spectrum. You are either dead or you are alive. A pure white canvas is not a pure white canvas if there is even one speck on it. That's a 50% off at Michael's canvas in the bargain bin. And the only way to redeem that canvas is for a really creative artist to come along and use that spot to make something new out of it. It's the only way you redeem that canvas. There's not a lot of great artists bargain bin shopping for damaged goods. But that's exactly what Jesus came to do. Never mind all the examples you can think of all the people in the world who have let you down, who claim to be Christians, who claim to be leaders, who claim to be good Powerful speakers who can inspire. Talk about Jesus today. And this is what he came to do. And his reputation precedes him. And that's what I noticed about this story this week. Jesus' reputation precedes him. All right, well, immediately this week, we get a reminder that Mark is indeed the shotgun gospel. <laughs> he likes to take little details and just throw them out and then just breeze past a whole bunch of details and then give us some really cool concentrated details. Starting off, upon the road, they came to Jericho. Anyways, as they were leaving Jericho, wait, what happened in Jericho? Why'd they go there? Matthew and Luke are like, don't worry. We'll fill in details later. Don't worry about it. We got you. And then John's more like, more than you could possibly know. Couldn't fit it all in books. Trust me. (laughs) 
Actually, don't go look at Matthew and look. I don't know if they talk about Jericho. They probably don't. I didn't look at that. They pro- there's probably no, we don't know anything about Jericho. I doubt we know anything about Jericho. Anyway, <laughs> let's read the whole text this morning. We're in Mark 10. Mark 10. We're going to read 46 through 52. I'm going to read the whole text over us this morning just to refresh our memory on the story that we have today. It's a very, very short story. Uh, very brief story about healing a blind man. Um, and then we'll dive in and go over the details. But we're going to read the whole passage to start, just to give us the whole context of the whole story. Mark 10, as you get there, starting in verse 46. We're going to read to the end. They came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many warned him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more, have mercy on me, son of David. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, have courage, get up, he's calling for you. He threw off his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. Then Jesus answered him, What do you want me to do for you? Rabboni, the blind man said to him, I want to see. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has saved you. And immediately he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. So immediately they come to Jericho, and then immediately they leave it. Large crowd, and this person, this beggar, this blind beggar, this outcast, hears who it is. Just hears who it is. That's all. Jesus of Nazareth. Obviously, he didn't see who it was. He hears. (laughs) He merely (laughs) hears. Uh, (laughs) Sorry, on the name, Timaeus. Timaeus is the title, interestingly enough, of Plato's most famous dialogue and the name of its narrator. Okay? There's a lot of discussion around the name Timaeus. Was it really his name? Here's why. It's actually the title of Plato's most famous dialogue and the name of its narrator, In the Timaeus and elsewhere, Plato famously contrasts seeing the mere physical world while being blind to eternal truths. So he compares being able to see the physical world but being totally blind to spiritual eternal truths. It's his famous work, Timaeus. Timaeus would be a, um, unknown, a fairly unknown and uncommon name that wouldn't typically be a name in this time. So a lot of scholars think that perhaps this is more of a title given to this blind beggar rather than a name. It's not known. In his book, uh, Philo or Philo of Alexandria and the Timaeus of Plato, 1983, the classicist David Runia argues that the Timaeus was the only Greek prose wor- prose work that up to the third century AD, every educated man could be presumed to have read. This is a 
a work that if you were educated, it would just be assumed, oh, well, then you've read this, Timaeus' work. It's possible that the name was used to relate a deeper truth about eternal matters to a Gentile audience. It's possible. We're not actually told why this name is given, but it doesn't change the story of the gospel either way. It doesn't change the story. Now, the name Bartimaeus suggests other linguistic possibilities. In simplest terms, the name combines the Aramaic bar, for son, with the Greek Timaeus, honorable. So Bartimaeus is a family name. He's just the son of a father named Timaeus. And more subtly and allegorically, he's the son of honor or an honored person. This blind beggar. Did they name him that? Was it a title given? I think there was a reason for including this name either way. Why son of honor? It's possible that that's not the name at all. We're not told one way or another, but considering that Mark doesn't usually tell us the names of people that Jesus heals, the name's meaning is probably supposed to be noted by the reader. It's probably supposed to be significant to us. Why did the writer do that? Well, probably had something to do with what Jesus had just been telling his apostles in Mark 9. After the apostles had been arguing about who would be greatest, Jesus sat them down and told them what they would really be doing in his kingdom. Mark 9, 35, it'll be on screen. Sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. You might even honor somebody who is considered lowly. Then again, last week, after the apostles became indignant with James and John for asking to be on Jesus left and right, Jesus again calls them over, sits them down again, and says something really similar in Mark 10, 42 through 45. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so with you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. See, the people looked on the outer appearance of this blind beggar and said in their hearts and out loud that he was not worthy to be in Jesus' presence. This beggar knew that Jesus didn't work that way. This beggar, this blind beggar, knew Jesus didn't work that way. Instead, asked for mercy, knowing the state of his own heart was far worse than what people saw even on the outside. He knew his condition. He understood how low he really was, and yet he knew who this Jesus was and that he didn't work that way. In fact, he seems to have faith in Jesus' willingness to heal him as he is not dissuaded by the crowd of people that are trying to silence him. A crowd that seems to be either embarrassed, annoyed, or perhaps and probably more likely frustrated 
Keep in mind exactly what's been happening up to this point. Jesus just gave the apostles the most detailed play-by-play of his death. In Mark 10, 34, Jesus pulls his apostles aside and told them, speaking of himself, he said, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will raise after three days. Kind of heavy. Kind of really heavy. So they might be, you know, kind of like, hey, beggar, maybe now's not the best time. Kind of going through some stuff here. I don't know if we have capacity for you right now. But he seems to have faith in Jesus' willingness to heal him. Why does he have that? It doesn't seem as though he's ever met this Jesus based off his faith. It seems like he would have been healed if he had met Jesus before. He certainly can't observe Jesus again. You need eyes for that. Well, here's where I think some of Jesus' previous healings gives us some insight. First off, we have healing of a leper in Mark 1, 40 through 45. Leper comes to Jesus in full faith and then is blown away by it, runs and proclaims to everyone. The healing of the paralytic in Mark 2, 1 through 12, his friend brings him and lowers him in. They're the ones who had the faith and brought him and lowered him in, and he's healed. The afflicted woman who secretly touches Jesus' robe. Why? Because she was afraid. There was fear and trembling. She had no business going up to a religious leader. And then we have the deaf and dumb man in Mark 7, 31 through 37, brought by friends again, healed, and then shouts it from the rooftops faith of his friends brings him in. And you have the blind man near Bethsaida, Mark 8, 22 through 26, brought by friends again, and then there's gradual healing, almost suggesting a lack of faith. And that's only found in Gospel of Mark, by the way, interestingly enough. And then now we have the blind men near Jericho. Today's passage, Mark 10. You have a whole line of people who were healed, met this Jesus, this person that should have no reason being in the same room with, unworthy, outcast of society, healed, and then they go out and they just proclaim it and shout it from the rooftops. Who's listening to the lowest of the low? Certainly everyone, but certainly the other lowest of the low. Jesus has a reputation of caring about people just like this beggar. And he's proven it through his actions over and over again. His actions prove it over and over again until the point that this blind man simply hears the name Jesus of Nazareth and knows for a fact, I have access to this person. If I can get to him, he will make me see. What a reputation. The bad reputation that other religious leaders and even some of the Jews' own disciples, or Jesus' own disciples had from time to time was not enough to convince this man that Jesus didn't care about him. 
the harsh reality is that when you're the person in society that nobody cares about and no one wants around, you know it. You know it. You know what a sideways glance is. You can tell when somebody is hoping that you won't talk to them or looking for a way out of the conversation. People aren't stupid. This man with no eyesight at all has heard about this Jesus. He's heard about this Jesus who is willing to touch lepers, heal the crippled, heal Gentiles, eat with tax collectors and sinners, give the deaf their hearing and the blight their sight. Based on that reputation, this man thinks this Jesus is the real deal. That's real reputation. And as usual, Jesus is ready to serve the lowest around him. Even when things are really, really heavy, even when he's just revealed to all of his closest companions, look, I'm going to get really, really messed up, and I'm, then I'm going to die, and then I'm going to get raised up. It's going to be the worst day of my life. He has revealed clearly what he's about to go through, and yet he has time for this, this beggar, the lowest of the low around him. Now, I want to take a bit of a rabbit trail at this point. Something, something that we see in this text. Jesus didn't take a break from serving beggars, even though he was knowingly walking towards the worst day of his life. And I find that remarkable. I find that, as a human, I find that truly remarkable, because Jesus came as son of man. He didn't come just as as God. He came with all the, the, the limitations and the challenges and the temptations of men. And God has given us each a calling in life, a task to complete. But in our darkest hours, I know this personally, this is a natural human instinct. There is a natural desire within us, a temptation to turtle up, to throw in the towel. We might say something like, I just don't have capacity for that right now. I'm all out of bandwidth. Now, don't get me wrong. We know there is a time to take a step back, to spend with our Father in heaven because we see Jesus do that himself. We're not always called to be in the fight all the time, always. Jesus himself took time out. But I think we do it wrong, and, it, and I know Jesus did it right. In Mark 1.35, after Jesus had spent a day healing people, teaching and casting out demons, he decides to spend some time with the Father. And we read, very early in the morning, mm, 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 very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying, Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let's go. On to the neighboring villages so that 
I may preach there too. This is why I have come. So he takes a little time very early in the morning. We also see in Mark 6, 45 through 47, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. Well into the night. Well into the night. The boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Why is Jesus doing this? What does Jesus taking a step out for a moment look like? It looks like filling back up in prayer with the Father. I don't see Jesus taking a step away from what God has called him to, except to be with the Father to be strengthened, encouraged, loved, and sent back to what he's been called to. That's what the filling was for. Fill up to re-engage. God's not asking us to do what we're called to without being filled up. Maybe we're not filled up because we're not asking. I say we're very intentionally. You'll notice in all these examples that Jesus isn't creating time to take a step out. Jesus is taking the naturally occurring time that happens when you're following God's will in your life. He finished with the crowd, then stepped away. He got up early before everyone else. Why? Because that's a naturally occurring gap in what his father has asked him to do. He knew, I can get up early, spend life-filling time with my Father in heaven who loves me, and I can do all that I've been asked to, filled and ready to tackle the day. Jesus has time for beggars in his darkest days because his connection to the Father in heaven. What have we been called to? We know where Jesus is going next. What have we been called to? The kids that we've been called to raise, the family that we're witnessing to, the health struggles that we're dealing with, ministry, work. How filled up are we? And are we looking for those naturally occurring breaks to go spend time with the Father, to get filled up, so that when the weight falls on our shoulders, we're not overwhelmed, and we don't look at the beggar and say, not right now, not right now. Because we had just spent time with the Father, and he he had filled us up, and in our minds, in that prayer time, we were already picturing the important things of life, people, and we're ready to dive into that with them whenever, however, God would give us an opportunity. Sorry, long rabbit trail. That was important for me this week. Jesus, having been filled, is not overwhelmed. In verse 49, we see Jesus stop. And in two words, confirm everything that the blind man believed about his reputation. Call him. 
So they called the blind man and said to him, have courage. This is in verse 49. Get up. He's calling you. He's calling you. Not a fallen religious leader. He, son of God, son of man, Messiah, Christ, the perfect one, the holy one, the one who always lifts up the lowly, the one who came to serve is calling you. And in the depths of darkness and brokenness, light came shining through the veil as this man hears not just the voice, but the very heart of Christ. As the physical world is shrouded, an eternal truth grows bright in this man's eyes. The light of man has really come. What would you do in that case? Well, Mark tells us what he did, verse 50. He threw off his cloak, jumped up, and came to Jesus. And then Jesus answered him, what do you want me to do for you? And then he says, Rabboni, I want to see. Rabboni is the stronger form of rabbi. It means my Lord, my master. This man recognizes what no amount of eyesight can reveal. He proclaims Jesus as Lord and asks to see light. Jesus responds. Jesus says to him, go, your faith has saved you. Immediately he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. Now I know, I know there is somebody in this room right now that has never fully accepted and followed Jesus because of the reputation of religious leaders, because of what you have seen in this world. Not just the reputation, by the way, experience with. If I'm right and you're sitting here right now thinking that, please hear me. Jesus has proven that he loves the broken. Jesus has proven he loves the lost. Jesus has proven that he shops in bargain bins for damaged goods just like you because he loves you. And he wants to see something amazing and new come from you. And he believes in you. And he wants you with him. I have the worship team come up. I'm going to close our time with um, a quote from G. Campbell Morgan on this passage. It's a commentary that um, fills me with passion wherever I read because he writes beautifully. It doesn't sound like commentary. You get all the information and yet it's just it's the most beautiful commentary I've ever read. It comes from G. Campbell Morgan. So I want to read this over us. Fellowship in the greatness of his kingdom is conditional upon fellowship in his cup, in his baptism, in sacrifice. How little do we know of this experimentally? How little have we known? Where can we begin 
to have real fellowship with our king, the first blind beggar we meet is our opportunity. The first local and apparently unimportant case of necessity that cries out is our chance. If Jesus should have passed that blind beggar and refused to help him because his thoughts were so great upon him, he would have cut the nerve of his coming passion. He could not pass that man by because he was mastered by the passion that took him to the cross. So God help us to go forth, seeing the coming of his glory, sharing the travail of his soul, and doing it with the next who asks our help. That's Jesus' heart. Those are our marching orders. But we are called to us to be our heart. And if you're sitting in here before and you've never asked Jesus into your heart because of people around you, this is what the people around you are trying to get to. We're all pointing to Jesus, not at, not at us. We're not Jesus. We're pointing to Jesus. This morning, we're having a unique opportunity. As God seems to have blessed us tremendously these past couple months, we are doing another baptism. I'm really excited about another baptism. Another person who says, I do believe in Jesus. I am following Jesus, and I want to show that I'm following Jesus. I want to be dipped into that water to represent that my old person is dying, has passed away, and as I come out of that water, Jesus has made me something new. So as the worship team plays, we're going we're gonna to hop in the baptismal. We're going to do a baptism. Uh, and we'll stay in there as long as people want to come forward. If there's somebody in here today who's hearing these words, recognizing the truth that Jesus is who he says he is, his reputation precedes him for a reason, and today you've decided, I actually do want to follow Jesus, I'm going to invite you to come forward, sit in this front pew, and someone will bring you back and we'll baptize you, celebrate with you. And if you're just not sure and you want to talk to somebody afterwards, please come find me. Find somebody around you. This is a room filled with believers who point to Jesus. Spend the time with you. Lord, this morning... As we look at your word, we are again humbled by um, how tempted by everything you were and how faithful you were to not fail. You are what we strive for. We humbly recognize that none of us have made the mark. That you're the redemption. You're the reason we all have life. You're the reason we, we can draw air. We praise you and we worship you today. As we worship as a body, as a group, pray that you're honored by our, our offering of worship, the condition of our hearts that we'd be pointing to you. And Lord, as, as we celebrate with our sister and perhaps others who are going to publicly declare that they're following after you, pray that it would be a pleasing aroma to you. 
all the angels will be celebrating. Be honored by our conduct. In your name.